It always, it always grieves my pastoral heart to tear apart these wonderful conversations. Um, but we can't be here all morning. There are people with your children back there counting the minutes until you come get them. They're not doing that. They're not doing that. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you have a Bible, you can begin turning it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in these black chairback pockets. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one. Um, that's our gift to you. We want, we want everyone to have the Word of God accessible to them at their fingertips. So before my wife Kim and I moved to Cayman, typically, and, and I'm sure that some of you who aren't from here originally have this experience too, I would drive probably 90 minutes to two hours every day and commuting back and forth to work. Um, which was actually pretty typical for Chicago. And so since I've been here, one of my favorite things has been getting all that time back. And you might think that I would spend that time on the beach or, you know, hiking the Massac Trail, but I've been spending a ton of time reading, which is what nerds do. They move to islands and then they stay inside. Um, And one of my favorite things to read is biographies, and one of my favorite people to learn about is the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, who is fascinating, fascinating, especially before he became president. So when Theodore Roosevelt was a child, he wanted to grow up to be an ornithologist, which is a naturalist who studies birds. And so when he was 13, his dad gave him his first rifle, and he couldn't hit anything. He couldn't hit anything, but when his friends would come out with him, he'd give them the gun, and they would aim it into what looked like thin air to Theodore Roosevelt, shoot, and a bird would drop to the ground, and he realized He couldn't see anything. He was 13 years old, had no idea that he was totally nearsighted. And this is how he describes that time of his life. He says, I spoke to my father and soon afterward got my first pair of spectacles, which literally opened an entirely new world to me. I had no idea how beautiful the world was until I got those spectacles. While much of my clumsiness and awkwardness was doubtless due to general characteristics, A good deal of it was due to the fact that I could not see and yet was wholly ignorant that I was not seeing. He couldn't see and yet he was totally ignorant of that fact. He thought he could see just fine and then he got glasses and realized how much he'd been missing. This morning we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark a group of people who think they can see and are mistaken. And through their experience we're going to see that we ourselves are in danger of the same thing. So we're almost, in our preaching through Mark, we're almost at the pivot point, the watershed that divides the first half, which is all about the question, who is Jesus, from the second half, which is all about the question, what did he come to do? And so through these first eight chapters, Jesus has been traveling around with his disciples in tow, trying, showing people who he is through the things that he does, through his authority. And so Jesus heals people's diseases and he casts out demons with just a word. He, he raises people from the dead as though he's just rousing them from sleep. Nature, storms obey him as a good dog, his master. He has absolute authority over creation. He does what only God can do and expects anyone watching attentively to draw the obvious conclusion. That God, the king of all history, the king of all creation, has stepped into history, has stepped into creation as a man. That's who Jesus is. And everywhere he's gone, his disciples, his followers, have watched him do these things. So they should know better than anyone what kind of man this is. But we're going to see this morning how far from the truth they still are. 
So I want to make one clarification. If you've been following the sermons, you know that last week we finished in Mark chapter 7, verse 30. So you would think this morning we would start with Mark chapter 7, verse 31. But that story, that last story in Mark chapter 7, is a healing of a deaf man. And then in chapter 8, there's a healing of a blind man. And Mark intends those to be seen together. They're kind of bookends, bracketing another passage about Jesus, his disciples, and bread, which is... You know, this morning, bread, that's the interesting hook I have for you. We're going to talk about bread. Um, But so Ryan next week is going to take those two healing passages together. So this morning, we're going to start in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. So please follow along as I read through verse 21, and then I'll pray. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loads for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Our Father, we we do not yet understand. We do not see as we should. We do not see clearly. We only see a glimmer of who you are and how great you are. Uh, We are totally dependent upon you to see things as they are. We're totally dependent upon you God, to open our eyes, to open the eyes of our hearts, as the Apostle Paul says, that we might know your greatness and the greatness of the hope to which we've been called. And so we are in desperate need of you, Father, to send your spirit this morning, right now, to help me to preach your word faithfully and to help us all to hear you speak and to see what you want us to see. So do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have in this passage three scenes that Jesus and his disciples pass through. There's this scene in a desolate place where Jesus and his disciples feed 4,000 people with just, you know, somebody's lunch with seven loaves and a few small fish. 
And then they leave there and they cross the Sea of Galilee to Dalmanutha, which was in the kind of the Jewish part of the Sea of Galilee. And there, we have this picture of them kind of getting off the boat and immediately the Pharisees come, start arguing with him. Jesus has had enough of them. And so he just turns around, gets back in the boat and travels back across the Sea of Galilee. And so the third scene takes place while they're on this boat traveling back across the sea. And so there are three scenes we're going to see, but God is trying to get one thing done this morning. In a nutshell, the message of this morning's scripture is even Jesus' followers need him to open their eyes to who he really is. Even Jesus' followers need him to open their eyes to who he really is. So we're going to unpack this by looking at three things in the passage. We're going to see a miracle, a surprise, and a reason for hope. And this should be on the back of your bulletin. So first, a miracle. Jesus shows that he is the God who abundantly satisfies all people. Jesus shows that he is the God who abundantly satisfies all people. This passage probably feels really familiar to those of you who've been, who've been consistently with us on Sunday mornings because it sounds almost exactly like something that happened a few weeks ago where Jesus broke five loaves and fed 5,000 people. Here we have seven loaves, 4,000, really similar. Jesus and his disciples have kind of taken a retreat together. They're trying to get away from the busyness of ministry to have some time to recover. This huge crowd gathers to Jesus, looking to him for help, and he sees them, he has compassion on them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus, then he, he teaches them, and they get hungry, so then he feeds them. This amazing miracle just takes five loaves, two fish, breaks it, 5,000 people eat, and there are 12 baskets of scraps left over, which is just amazing. And the miracle wasn't just a show that Jesus put on. It wasn't just pyrotechnics to see what he could do. It was intended to reveal an aspect of who he is. So who is it that can feed thousands of people with bread in the wilderness? Well, any, any Jew who knew the old stories, this would immediately make them think, of the Exodus, right? The Exodus is when God, with a mighty hand, takes his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then brings them through the wilderness into a good land he provided for them. And, and one of their main fears in the wilderness is where are we going to get enough food? How are we going to eat? How do, you, how do you feed a whole nation of people in a desert? But every morning they get up, they get out of their tents, and there's bread on the ground, bread they called manna. And every morning There was daily bread. There was enough bread for them to eat every day. It was a miracle. And so when any any Jew who knew the old stories would know that when thousands of people are miraculously fed with bread in the wilderness, they have God to thank. But, But what do you do with that information when the miracle is done at the hands of a man? Who is this man who can make bread do this? As we've seen again and again, Jesus is God himself. He's the only God, the God who made and sustains the world. That's who Jesus is. And not only that, but he shows through the miracle that he's the God who abundantly satisfies. He doesn't just, he doesn't just make enough bread. He goes over the top. So there's way more bread left over than there was even at the beginning. He abundantly satisfies all people. So if we've already seen all this when Jesus fed the 5,000, why are we doing it again? Why not kind of save the space, move on to something interesting and new? Well, don't get me wrong, this is still amazing, right? Feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves, not your everyday kind of of activity. But what's really remarkable here isn't the details of the miracle as much as it is the location of the miracle. Because before when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was among 
Jews. He was among his own people, the people that God had chosen for himself, the people that God had promised the Christ would come to, Jesus who is the Christ, that he was, he was coming to his own people. But here, Jesus is among Gentiles. If you look at chapter 7, verse 31, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a region of ten cities that aligned themselves with Greek and Roman culture. It was on the, it was on the borders of Israel, but there was, it wasn't Jewish. These were not Jews that Jesus was traveling amongst. So when it says in chapter 8, verse 1, in those days, it's still talking about Jesus traveling through this area with all these Gentiles, people that were separated from the people of Israel. Gentiles, I should explain, are, they're non-Jews. They're not physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't, they didn't receive the promises of God. They don't know the law of God. They don't obey God. And to, to many Jews at the time, they were enemies. They were unclean. They were pagan. They were, you know, they had this terrible, awful, unbiblical religion. They, they didn't want anything to do with them. And yet Jesus goes to these people and does the same miracle among them that he does among the Jews. So he, he wants to show them that he isn't just a God who satisfies the Jews. He isn't just a God who has kind of a pet people, and he doesn't care about anyone else. He is the God who can abundantly satisfy all people who draw near to him. He can satisfy Jew, Gentile, anyone he made, he can satisfy because he is the God who made the world. Last Sunday, in Ryan's sermon, we saw this exchange between Jesus and this remarkable Gentile woman who comes to Jesus because she's heard about his power. She has a daughter who is afflicted by a demon. And she comes to Jesus and asks him to heal her. And Jesus, Jesus almost plays a little game with her to test if her faith has perseverance. And he says to her, he says to her that he was sent to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. That he, he sent to the Jews first and the Gentiles come later. He says, um, he says, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's an order to this, right? Let the Jews be satisfied first, and then your turn will come. But this woman, with great faith and quick wit, replied, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She had such faith in Jesus that she knew that even the crumbs from his table could save her daughter. And so she persevered, and Jesus loved her faith. He approved of it. And he healed her daughter right then. And so this morning, in this, in this feeding of the 4,000, we see more of the crumbs from Jesus' table. He's, he has satisfied the Jews. He's, given, he's fed 5,000 with 12 baskets left over. And now he has come to the people that are not the Jews, that are not God's historic people, and he satisfies them too. Even the crumbs from his table can feed 4,000 people, right? 20 times as many people as ever fit into this room on a Sunday morning. He's the God who abundantly satisfies all people. Jesus' power and grace are more than equal to any situation that you face. We can't exhaust his resources. There's nothing you can, you can bring to Jesus and say, I need help with this. And Jesus will say, I, you know, that's a little bit beyond my limits. I just can't do anything about that. You know, maybe ask for something a little bit less and I can... No, there's nothing that exceeds Jesus' power. No situation, because he's the God who can abundantly satisfy all who draw near to him. To many of the Jews, this feeding of the Gentiles would have been a scandal. Even, even if they believed that Jesus was the Christ, they would have 
could have easily thought, but he's, he's the Jewish Christ. He, he's for us. He's supposed to keep us safe from those filthy pagans, not, not to do for them what he does for us. It could have been a huge stumbling block, but what they didn't see was this had always been God's plan. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham he would make of him a great nation, and in him all families of the earth would be blessed. All families of the earth, all peoples. God always intended to extend his grace to all peoples, to the Gentiles. And in fact, one of the ways that God describes this in the Old Testament is as a feast, as a great banquet. He says in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. God had promised that he would lay a table for the Gentiles, and on this morning, in front of 4,000 witnesses, he did. In Christ, he laid a banquet for the Gentiles to come to him. So Jesus has used this miracle to show that he's the God who abundantly satisfies all people, and we and the disciples should have expected it. But there's something in the passage that we didn't expect. So first we saw a miracle. Second, we see a surprise. Who gets it and who doesn't? Mark, in this passage, makes a really clear contrast between two groups of people. There's one group that that recognizes Jesus as someone who's teaching is so valuable, it should command their complete attention. And there's another group who only seems to be listening with like one ear or half an ear. And there's a group that, that finds Jesus to be so compelling and so important that they're willing to forgo food in order to hear him. And there's another group that seems to be unable to think about anything but where lunch is coming from. And it, it's surprising which group is which. Which group is it that sees Jesus as valuable, that longs for his teaching, that hungers for it more than for food? Is it the disciples? It's not the disciples. It's the Gentiles. The Gentiles, these people hadn't heard much about Jesus at all. Right? They, they'd heard a report about some of his miracles. We know. We don't know how much beyond that they knew. But they certainly didn't know as much as his best friends knew about him, and yet, and yet the Gentiles come to him and listen to him for three days without something to eat. They want to hear him more than they want their three square meals, and on some level they trust, if we stick with this guy, the food is going to get taken care of. We want to hear what he has to say. They wanted to put first things first. So contrast that with the disciples who have been with Jesus more than anyone else and seem consistently in the whole passage to have no idea what's going on. So at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus gives the disciples a word problem. Do you guys remember word problem from math class or maths class? This is where, you know, like a a train leaves Durham Station at 8 in the morning, heading south at 120 kilometers per hour, blah, 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 blah. Jesus gives them this word problem to see if they're tracking with him. He says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes... They will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So Jesus kind of paints the picture. He says, all right, guys, we've got a huge crowd of people. We need to feed them here because they can't leave. What do you think we should do? Like quite a pickle. And the disciples who have seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread have no idea. They are flummoxed. Look at verse 4. And his disciples answered him, 
How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? We, we have no idea. What do you think? So that's embarrassing, right? It's embarrassing for them to not have remembered what just happened. And then, and then we have the episode in the boat, right? Jesus and his disciples, they leave there. They go and have this kind of altercation with the Pharisees we're going to talk about in a minute. And then they come, they come, they're coming back across the lake, and the disciples have become very concerned because they didn't bring enough bread. They forgot to bring the bread. They've got one loaf. They've got one loaf in the boat. And so you can, you can imagine them kind of getting hungrier and hungrier. They feel like they've been in the boat all day, maybe getting tired from rowing across the lake, and they're starting to get more and more worried. What are we going to do when our energy runs out? We have no bread. And Jesus takes the opportunity, while on the subject of bread, to issue a warning. He says in verse 15, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they just look at him, and you can imagine somebody whispers, What did he say? Someone whispers back, He said something about bread. You know, what, what did he say about bread? Did he say it was my fault? We didn't bring the bread. It was not my fault. I was in charge of the boats. Bartholomew was in charge of the bread. Like, they're just arguing about why they don't have any bread. They're thinking... We had seven baskets of bread, and none of it has made it into the boat. And, and Jesus is just so frustrated because they're not seeing what they're supposed to be seeing. This is exactly what he's warning about when he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is an agent to make bread rise, right? Yeast is a leaven. It's something you work through the dough, and it makes the whole thing rise. It's, but it's become, at this time, in this culture, it became an image of kind of a pervasive evil influence. So if we go back to the Exodus, at that time, when the people came out of Egypt, they came out so fast, their bread didn't have time to rise. And so after that, whenever they celebrated the Passover, they celebrated by eating only unleavened bread. And you had to cleanse your whole house of leaven. Before the, before the, the festival, you had to get rid of all the leaven. It was this kind of purge. And it became this picture of what you need to do with evil. You purge the evil out. Because the thing about leaven is it, it spreads, right? It, it, it fills the whole loaf. You put a little bit of leaven in a loaf of bread, you work it through, and it makes the whole thing different. It has a pervasive influence. A little bit goes a long way. So Jesus is warning them about the evil influence of the Pharisees and Herod. That this influence can get in their lives. And if a little bit gets in, It'll go a long way to turning them in a way they don't want to go. You remember that Jesus has just had an encounter with the Pharisees, right? This would have been in their minds when he says, watch out for the Pharisees. They just had this, this, they just had this argument where the Pharisees, in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation, and he left. So the Pharisees have come to him. They've, they've come looking for a sign. So they come to a man who has healed the sick, and he has raised the dead, and he has calmed the storm, and he has fed thousands of people with a handful of bread twice, and they say, let's see some proof that you're the Son of God. And Jesus is just, he's just done with their seeking of signs. He knows that, he knows that if he showed them a sign, they wouldn't get it because Having eyes, they do not see. Or, as Sherlock Holmes would say it, I've been on a Sherlock Holmes kick recently, show and books, they see, but they do not observe. Their eyes pass over it, but they don't get what they're supposed to get out of the sight. So I, I commonly get the complaint at home 
that having eyes I don't see. Because it's possible for me, I can come in the front door of my house, I can walk through the kitchen, I can grab my laptop out of the living room, go upstairs, I can go to the bedroom, grab a book, I can go into my office, having passed through four rooms, and having eyes, I have not seen the mess, right? I don't see the uncleanness. I don't see my, my breakfast dishes still on the counter. I don't see my backpack on the floor of the living room. I don't see a week's worth of discarded pants on the bed in the bedroom. I don't even see the stack of books I have to step over to get into my office. I, having eyes, I don't see what my wife perceives immediately. She, I don't see it, but she immediately understands the meaning of the mess, which is that, that on Saturday afternoon during Joshua's nap, I have some work to do. Right? And that's, that's the problem the Pharisees have. Their eyes, there's nothing wrong with their eyes, but they don't get what they're supposed to get out of the things that they see. They see Jesus do these things, and they don't get who Jesus is. He knows that if he showed them a sign, it wouldn't change anything because the problem is their hard hearts. And so he just gets in the boat, washes his hands of them, and just leaves. So the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is this influence of, of having their disease, of not seeing Jesus for who he is, of not getting what they're supposed to get. And if, if his disciples aren't careful, that influence can get in their lives as well. It, and it's interesting that he says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, because these are not groups that would often be paired together, right? The Pharisees were this religious group super focused on religious purity, on, cl- on cleanliness, on keeping God's law. Herod, on the other hand, was the ruler. He was, he was hyper-focused on maintaining political power to the point of, of, you know, of, of arresting and killing any opponents that he had. There wasn't a lot of overlap here, except they were both threatened by Jesus. Jesus threatened the Pharisees' power because all these people that used to think the Pharisees were like the religious superheroes are now following Jesus around. And he's a threat to Herod, too, because he's saying, I am the king of the Jews, which is, you know, when you say to a ruler, I'm the king, that tends to get under their skin a little bit. And so they're both threatened by Jesus. Jesus is endangering what they love the most. And so Jesus has become their enemy. And Jesus says to his followers, if you're not careful, you're going to get the infection that my enemies have of not seeing who I am, of not getting what I've come to do. So, <laughs> so back to the boat. Jesus says, he, he, he asked them these questions that show the problem that he has with them. Look in verse 17. He's, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? We know that he thinks the Pharisees have hard hearts, but now he's asking, are your hearts hardened too? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets? They said to him, seven. So they do remember, right? They, their memories are not problematic. They remember the details of the situation, but they don't see the relevance of those miracles to the situation in the boat without bread. They're just like, why a pop quiz now? Like, we're so hungry. Why is he talking? And Jesus is saying, don't you get who I am? Don't you get, I can make more bread, Right? You have seen me feed 5,000 people. You've seen me feed 4,000 people. You think with one loaf I can't feed 13? I can make more bread. Don't you get who's in the boat? They've seen, but they haven't observed. They haven't made the connection. If they had seen who Jesus is, if they really understood, then the bread would not be their concern. The bread would not be what they're focused on because he can take care of bread. If there's one thing they know that he can take care of, it's bread. 
right? So it's easy to laugh at these, you know, dopey disciples. But God put this passage in the Bible because we need to see ourselves here as well. Do you ever find these symptoms in your life? Forgetfulness about God's past provision for you. Doubt whether he cares enough or has power enough to answer your prayers. Preoccupation with where the money's going to come from or where I'm going to find work. We know, or we think we know, who Jesus really is. We read our Bibles. We read our study Bibles. We go to church and we go to community group and we think we're getting who Jesus is. We see him at work in our lives. We see God answer prayer. We see things happen again and again. But then some tiny issue comes up in our lives and it just throws the whole thing into question. Like, Lord, if you are the Son of God, why can I never find free parking downtown? Right? Lord, ah! Lord, what, you know, why, why, why don't my sick kids get better? Lord, where's the money going to come from to pay for school this year? It's these things that are comparatively small compared to the greatness of his power, and yet it makes us doubt. We just say, Lord, we don't have any bread. And I started to see this pervasively in my life this week as I was reading this passage. Kim and I have started making our summer travel plans to go back to the States, and it's going to involve quite a bit of driving because our families don't all live in the same place. You know, the farthest Joshua ever goes in the car is like Georgetown to cost you less. And so it's going to be a little jarring to travel four hours in the car. And so, so Pastor Ryan asked me, how do you think Josh is going to do in the car? And without, without even thinking about it, I said, terrible. He's going to, it's going to be terrible. Not like, well, we're going to pray about it, or hopefully God will. No, it's terrible. Like, Lord, we do not have any bread. There is no hope. And Kim and I try to set aside one evening a week where we can, we have like our family meeting where we can talk about we can talk about priorities, we can talk about calendar stuff, we can talk about the budget. And the last time we met to talk about the budget, we, were just, we had to address kind of a, a small shortfall, a little deficit in our budget, which is, not, which is not big, but you guys know how expensive it is to live here. And so we were talking about what are we going to cut and what can we change and where's the money going to come from? And I was just sort of retreating into my worry about money, just like, oh, we're not going to have enough money for groceries and Kim's going to have to work and... Like, we have to put all of our hopes on Joshua because we are not having any more kids and just, like, kind of collapsing, <laughs> collapsing into my worry. Just like, just, Lord, we don't have any bread. And, and maybe, maybe you have kind of poured yourself into your Christianity Explored dinner group and none of your friends pitched up. Or you've really worked hard and you've prayed a lot and it seems like nothing in your group is happening and you just think, what is the point of reaching out? God is not going to do anything. We say we know who Jesus is, that he's the God who abundantly satisfies, but then we live as though we're counting on him not coming through for us. It's, it's such a danger for his disciples. We just assume he's not listening, he doesn't care, he's not going to help, because we don't see who he really is. And many of us here are Christians. We have trusted him, we've been born again, and yet we still need him to help us see. It's easy to think the problem is, I just need to see some proof. If I can just see a miracle, if I can just see God do something really big, then I'll never doubt again. Then all my questions will be answered. But we don't need a miracle. We don't need to see a miracle. We need a miracle done to us. We don't need to see a miracle. We need a miracle to help us see, to see who Jesus really is. We need Jesus to open our eyes to see him clearly. We, like the disciples, were often blind and deaf and hard-hearted. Even Jesus' followers need him to open their eyes to who he really is. So is there any hope for us? Yes. We've seen a miracle, 
and a surprise, and now, lastly, a reason for hope, the patient grace of Jesus. This passage, when you read it, can feel like a, it can feel like a slap in the face. Jesus kind of drills in his disciples these questions. Don't you understand? Don't you, can't you hear? Can't you see? And it can, sort of, it can feel pretty rough to be addressed by Jesus that way, because we're his disciples too. But that's not the whole story. So let me show you the places in the passage where we see the patient grace of Jesus. Jesus sees these symptoms of infection in his disciples. He sees blindness and deafness and hard-heartedness. He sees them becoming like the Pharisees. But he doesn't treat them like the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to him, they meet him, they argue with him. They say, give us a sign. And Jesus is just done with their games. He gets back in the boat and he leaves. But when his disciples are hard-hearted and unseeing and all these things, he stays in the boat. And we know he doesn't have to, right? The man can walk on water. He could go if he wanted to, and yet he stays in the boat. He's not done with them yet. He, he perseveres with his disciples. He hasn't changed the direction he's taking them. And so we see his patient grace in that. We see it in a little word that occurs twice in the passage. In verse 17, do you not yet perceive or understand? In verse 21, do you not yet understand? They don't understand yet, but they will. Jesus has not changed his commitment. And he didn't choose them because they were the best, because they were the sharpest, because they just got things right away. He chose them by grace. He chose them because he loved them. He chose them because he wanted them to be with him. He doesn't just wash his hands of them because they're slow to catch on. And that's good news, right? We can, we can see ourselves there. One of my favorite descriptions of God is a refrain that echoes through the Old Testament that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And Jesus is that patient, faithful God. There's a reason this passage is sandwiched between a story about Jesus healing a deaf man and a story about Jesus healing a blind man that we're going to look at next week. There's a reason why Jesus rehearses in front of these people that he can heal the deaf and he can heal the blind, that those kinds of things are in his wheelhouse because those are the kinds of things that they need. They need their ears open and their eyes opened and Jesus is the one who can do it. He will help them see and when he does, these dopey disciples are going to turn the whole world upside down. He is patient and gracious towards them. So if you find yourself this morning just totally overwhelmed with the material demands of life, with your load at work, or a lack of money, or just kind of a growing dread that everything is not going to be okay, everything is not going to work out, look again at verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. These people made Jesus their first priority, and because of it, they got hungry. And Jesus had compassion on them, and he fed them. He has compassion on his people, and he can abundantly satisfy all who come to him. So don't let the demands of life crowd Jesus out as your first priority. Remember what he said elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is the God who abundantly satisfies. He will add those things to you, which doesn't mean that his followers will never suffer want of anything, right? He's, 
He's in the boat with 12 disciples. Ten of them are going to be martyrs for knowing him. It doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy or they're going to end at a ripe old age, but it means that as long as Jesus has work for us, he can take care of us. He can satisfy us. So take heart. This, this feeding shows us that Jesus is the God who abundantly satisfies all people, and it even points, it just points at the ultimate way Jesus satisfied us. In John's account of the feeding of the, of the 5,000, afterwards, the next day, Jesus talks to the people about what it means, and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He will give us, he will give us what we need by dying on the cross. So when he, when he multiplies bread to feed thousands, it's this picture of what he's going to do in his death and resurrection, that he's going he's to dish out freely what we need to live forever. He's going to give from himself, give his own life so that we can be satisfied forever. And not just to thousands on a hillside, but to millions. And not just satisfied until the next meal, but satisfied forever. His life, giving his life on the cross can give eternal life to any who trust in him and come near to him. He says in the same discourse, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever, whoever believes in me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. So it's, it's trusting in Jesus, coming to him in faith. He will feed you in a way that will satisfy you forever. Jesus gave his life so we can be eternally satisfied. We can trust a man like that to care for us. So are you seeing him clearly? Or are you, like the disciples, preoccupied with secondary things, not trusting that if you seek him first, he can take care of your worries and your cares? He is the God who abundantly satisfies, and he's the God who opens eyes. So let's go to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you great praise, not just because you fed people with bread, but because you gave your life so that we could come to you and be satisfied forever, so that our soul hunger can be satisfied, our soul thirst can be quenched, so that we can have what we truly need for eternity and we don't see you clearly, and we want to. And so, Lord Jesus, you, you open the eyes of the blind. You open the ears of the deaf. Do it again this morning for us. Help us see and hear and love you the way you deserve to be loved. In Jesus' name, amen.